Are upsets as exciting as they once were? We'll get into that and a lot more this week on Iceman and Coach. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Iceman and Coach. This is the Iceman, Matt Freights. That is the coach, Brad Powell. Brad, how you doing, buddy? Iceman, doing wonderful, man. Like the best weekend of the year in the sports world, in my opinion, is officially in the books, which has given us a ton to talk about. We had the opening uh, opening round of March Madness. We had the NCAA wrestling tournament that happened. I didn't leave the house, man, all weekend. Like, no joke. I didn't go to the grocery store. I didn't go to the gas station. I didn't leave the house. I just parked my ass on the couch, watched as much uh, sports, as much wrestling and basketball uh, as I could uh, manage and enjoyed it. How about you, my friend? Is this a contractual obligation that you and your wife have, that this is something that you do every single year? Because I did have to leave the house this weekend as much as I wanted to just siphon in all of the madness from the entire weekend. Uh, No, you know what was nice? Saturday, she left the house for, I don't know, half the day, I would say, to go run some errands and eat lunch with her best friend. The kids were still here, but like, you know, they play and stuff. I mean, I don't totally check out, you know, I'm still involved. It got on the TV in the background. I'm not like zoned in on what's happening and I'm bouncing back and forth between basketball, wrestling, this game, that game uh, and all that kind of stuff. So it just it works out. It was nice. And um, I'm sure that maybe there were a few times where she would have wouldn't have minded a little extra effort on my part, maybe like vacuuming or something here or there. But uh, I'll just have to make up for it later. It was great because we had basketball on and just about every TV in the house. And, you know, my son wanted to watch some other stuff, but I just had it on. And it was kind of cool because most of the games were pretty entertaining. But before we get a deep dive into that, I want to remind you, scrolling across the bottom of the screen if you're watching on YouTube, and for those of you listening in the podcasting world, do not forget our call-in number. We want to hear your takes. We want to hear from the audience in Ice Time Nation. And that number is 703-718-6314. Again, 703-718-6314. And this was a great weekend, man. Thursday at 12 o'clock, I was super, super stoked. But I want to write a wrong from last week because last week or two weeks ago, I should say, I talked about how both Bradley and Virginia Tech seasons were over. And I forgot, and I really should be better than this, about the women's Final Four and women's college basketball. And I understand that women's basketball is not something that everybody watches, but the Virginia Tech women's basketball team this year has been objectively very, very good. They were a number one seed in the NCAA tournament, and they just went to their first Sweet 16 since 1999. And I have to give a shout out to the Lady Hokies, man. That is one hell of an achievement in a sport, college basketball for women, that has been dominated by a handful of schools over the last 20 years. Yeah, there hasn't been a lot of parity in uh, women's college basketball at all. So it is nice to see some other programs work their way into the equation. And I mean, you could say what you want about how how many fans they get and this and that. They're still playing against level competition. There's still, you know, 18 to 22, 23 year old women playing against other 18 to 23 year old women. No matter what, I mean, the fact that it means something to them should make it mean something to us. I agree. And honestly, a lot of the best coaches in women's college basketball and let's take Gina Oriyama or even the now deceased Pat Summit, those two could coach men. 
and they could coach professional men. I do believe that. And I think a lot of times when it's women's sports, if it's somebody who's very successful as a coach, we make this assumption that they can't do it with the big boys, as we like to say. I think that's patently untrue. And if you look at Becky Hammond in the NBA, she could not get a head coaching job in the NBA despite Greg Popovich giving her the opportunity as an assistant head coach and intentionally getting himself kicked out of games so that she could end up head coaching the team. And what does she do? She leaves, she takes a WNBA job, wins the championship in her first year. So I do think that while women's sports maybe don't attract a lot of men to the yard, there's a lot of talent, as you pointed out there. So I wanted to give the Lady Hokies a shout out. But before we get into the men's tournament, you mentioned last week March Madness, and you were in my text messages over the weekend telling me that I should be watching wrestling. I have to cop to you and everybody watching and listening to the show. I watch zero seconds of wrestling. I'm sorry. I know that it means a lot to you. So I wanted to give you the floor here to educate people, dumb people like me, who maybe don't know anything about college wrestling or just wrestling in general and why this is something that is exciting and maybe should be on more people's radars. Well, the one thing about wrestling, real quick, that's so special, that's kind of always drawn me to it, is there's a lot of parallels. And people talk all the time, there's a lot of parallels between sports and real life. But wrestling, I feel like it's more prevalent than anywhere else because it is. It's just you and one other person. There's nowhere to point the finger. And you're the only person that can do anything to improve your situation. In wrestling, because of its nature, you have to give essentially 100% of your effort 100% of the time that the match is happening. I mean, so I'm talking about every muscle in your body is fully engaged practically the entire time. If you let up for one second, that's an opportunity for your opponent to, to score points somehow. And to be able to do that, and at the college level, they wrestle for seven minutes. It's three periods. The first period's three minutes. The second, third, or two minutes. To be able to do that for seven minutes straight, I mean, think about running a sprint for seven minutes. It's about the equivalent of running a sprint for seven minutes. Yeah, you get a little breather if you go out of bounds. Between periods, maybe you get 30 seconds. But other than that, I mean, it's just go, go, go. And so the work it takes to get yourself in shape to do this is tremendous. If you don't work really, really hard, you are guaranteed failure. But just because you worked really, really hard, you are not guaranteed success. I mean, it's kind of a cruel mistress in that way. And so just I have a ton of respect for what, what they do, the work they put in, the passion they put in because I mean it is it's a it's a miserable trade per se as far as the effort that goes in these guys are usually cutting weight and stuff like that um, and going out there and it's physical hand to hand it's a fight with rules pretty much I mean you should see they do interviews of these guys after the weekend I mean and they look like they've literally been beat up I mean bruises black eyes everything else but to get to the tournament a little bit my Iowa Hawkeyes I'm a fan of they came up short they finished second place uh, which isn't bad, but it's not. You know, Iowa's got a very high standard. It's not where they want to be. Uh, Penn State is they're the they're the big dog on the block. Uh, they've they've won. I can't tell you. I think ten of the last twelve or something. I mean, they're they're very good. Uh, Kale Sanderson, their coach there, um, he's really got a good thing going. A, a dynasty really is what it is. Iowa's best wrestler at 125 pounds, Spencer Lee. He was a three-time national champion coming into this tournament. He was the most sure thing if you had asked anyone to win his fourth. He was upset in the semifinals by uh, a kid named Matt Ramos from Purdue, who's actually uh, he went to high school in Illinois. He upset Spencer Lee in the semifinals, shocked the wrestling world, really. And then uh, another one of my favorite things about wrestling is some of these obscure schools that you don't hear about in other sports are very successful in wrestling, like Cornell, for example, from the Ivy League. They finished fourth as a team at nationals. Uh, they had two national champions, one of which named Yanni Diakmahalis. 
was a, he won his fourth consecutive title. So he's a four timer, which is uh, has not happened too many times. So you see teams like that. Northern Iowa, who plays in Bradley's conference in basketball and is a mid-major, they're a top 20 program in the country in wrestling. University of Northern Colorado had a national champion. I don't, don't even know what the hell else they do in Northern Colorado, um, but apparently they wrestle. So Smoke a lot of weed. Yeah, I, I assume they do. But no, it's a great weekend. It's just three days of wrestling. And, and it's one of those deals that by you may go in as a fan of one team, but by the end of the weekend, seeing a lot of these guys, just they lay it all on the line. And you know all the work they put in to lead up to this point in time. And it's just to see the passion. And, and really, wrestling is a sport of mutual respect. I mean, they have a lot of respect for each other uh, because they know what the other guys put themselves through to even be on the mat. So, so there is a ton of mutual respect, and, and that's one of my favorite things about it. So is there a singles component and a team component to this? Because you talked about individuals being national champions, but that Iowa came in second place to Penn State. So is there kind of both? Yeah, so there are 10 weight classes, and... Um, Iowa qualified all 10 of their wrestlers for for the national tournament. And then, um, but based on how you perform individually in your individual bracket, you score team points for the team. So there's placing points. So if you get first place, you know, that's like 16 team points for your team. Every match you win is one point. If you win by pin, you get an extra point. You know, the, the fashion in which you win a match can earn you more points. And that all accumulates over the weekend and, and adds up to the team scores. It's, you know, I mean, Penn State, they beat Iowa. They they, they were, gosh, 50 points ahead of I. I mean, it wasn't even close. So it's not dissimilar from like how gymnastics works in NCAA and also in the Olympic competition where they have individual events that all lead up to a team score and things like that. That's pretty, pretty neat. I mean, the way you describe it as a boxing aficionado and somebody who loves boxing, it's not too dissimilar. You're talking about cutting weight. You're talking about an individual sport where you have to be on your game. It's a mental game. I know for me, as somebody who boxes every single week, you're outthinking your opponent. Most people think it's about brute strength and just pure adrenaline, but it's not about that. You have to be thinking all the time and on your feet. And as you pointed out, if you take a round off or you take 30 seconds off, yeah, three minutes doesn't sound like a lot, but I guarantee you a lot of people that are watching or listening to this right now, if they stepped into a wrestling ring for three minutes, it would feel like 300 years. No, it's an eternity. I remember in sixth grade, the first wrestling match I ever wrestled. And I mean, I had had two months of practice under my belt before I ever went out there the first time. And it was a four minute match, four minutes. Okay. You think you could do anything for four minutes. And I went out there, the match went the whole four minutes and, uh, actually won, which was nice. Didn't win a lot of wrestling matches in my day. Uh, won that match and I came off and I'm like, this is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I mean, I was just completely drained. Uh, there was, I mean, it, I, I played football, baseball, hockey. Um, I mean, I had done practically every sport you could that was available for a kid to do at that time. And it was by far the hardest thing I've ever done. And still to this day, I'll t I will tell anybody that wrestling is the hardest, the hardest sport that there is. There's a lot of hard sports out there. I'm not, this doesn't take anything away. This doesn't diminish any other sport, but it takes, uh, you got to be almost a little twisted to enjoy it because you have to basically torture yourself for six months <laughs> uh, to, to be in a position to be competitive. Uh, and uh, that's, but that same way though, in a weird way, it's almost addicting. And it's not a revenue generating sport. So it doesn't get the kind of coverage, at least in terms of dollars that come in and preferential treatment, I would assume maybe it does at Iowa, but I'm talking about on a national scale. We've talked sure. about how these universities are moving all over the place. The NCAA tournament is a very, very good example of that. The way we talked about it last Last week, none of the schools that we associate with these conferences really are part of these conferences anymore. And it's all about money. It's about basketball and football and programs like wrestling are just kind of along for the ride. So if you're talking about USC or UCLA, 
moving to the Big Ten. Now, if they have a wrestling program, these poor kids have to go basically to the heart of wrestling country and try to you know, apply their craft. And they're just a byproduct of all this. So I think it's all very fascinating from that perspective because there's just so much movement. And I think we forget that these kids at the end of the day are the ones that are quote unquote suffering. And I'm talking about the kids in these non-revenue generating sports. Sure. And one thing that hurts wrestling nationally from a fan perspective is there's really, there's not a pro wrestling. And I obviously, yes, we have the WWE, but there's not a pro collegiate style wrestling out there. But I know they've tried it in the past, like years ago, it wasn't successful. But uh, where you do see a lot of these guys end up is in the UFC and MMA. And, and that's kind of turned into the professional outlet for these guys. And there's a guy coming up right now. I don't know if you follow UFC or if any of the listeners do, but Bo Nickel uh, just had his first UFC fight like two weeks ago. Um, he was a three-time national champion at Penn State. He won the Hodge Trophy, which is the equivalent of like the Heisman for wrestling. He came out and he tapped this guy out in the first period. He he was in like the contender series or whatever, and, and he won three or four fights, got a shot. He was on the undercard in the pay-per-view, or maybe it was the first match of like the pay-per-view part. He came out and tapped this guy out in the first period. I mean, he, he was a problem as a wrestler. I mean, just the way his style and physicality, and uh, he's going to be a force to be reckoned with in the UFC, and I'm excited to watch it. It's nice to see those guys and be able to associate uh, the wrestling part of it. That's why, as an athlete, I have a lot of respect for Brock Lesnar. I know Brock Lesnar right now is in professional wrestling, but I believe he was a national champion wrestler. He was a UFC champion. So this guy can legitimately fight and doing professional wrestling is just sort of like a side job for him. And I think when he took that leap, a lot of people delegitimized him as an actual athlete. And so what does he do? He leaves wrestling, wins UFC heavyweight championship, and then goes back to it. But a lot of these correlations, but You mentioned Cornell. Now, Cornell is an Ivy League school that made a run a few years back to the Sweet 16, and they have now been matched. So you talked about the first weekend of the tournament. At the top of the show, I asked a fundamental question if upsets were nearly as sexy as they used to be. The reason I asked that is it seems to me that the chasm between those double-digit seeds and the top tier is closing because this past weekend we saw a 16-seed win, we saw a 15-seed win, a 13-seed win. We may have even seen a 14. I can't even remember. But my point is, every single year, it seems like these are becoming more and more commonplace. To that point, UMBC was the only 16-seed to beat a number one seed when it happened in 2018. And what, five years later, Fairleigh Dickinson, FDU, does it again? Five years is a very, very short amount of time. Do you think that that chasm is becoming smaller and the talent pool just as a overall product is getting better and better and there's kids that are getting opportunities to go multiple places so that an FDU can have a moment like this. Yes, first of all, the upsets are wonderful. I don't think that the excitement of them is, is diminishing at all. If anything, it's more exciting because it used to be those 116 matchups. You did, it was a foregone conclusion and now it's a game you want to watch because we've seen it. I mean, and there were even a couple others that were somewhat close. Um, because you never know. Like that that feeling of, well, we've seen it now, so like it could happen again. Yep. You're right, man. Like I was tuned into it and as soon as I saw the score like three quarters of the way in, I immediately switched to it. And I'm like, I can't believe that a 16 versus one has now become appointment television. Sure. And the most shocking part about it when I watched the FDU Purdue game is they looked like the better team on the floor uh, for at least the amount of time I was watching the game. I mean, they were explosive. 
athletic, attacking the basket, playing tenacious defense, which is what you have to do if you're an undermanned team, undersized even in that in their case. But oh my God, man, like just the athleticism they had and just the the speed at which they played with was impressive. And it was a problem for Purdue. Problem. And yeah, and uh I mean, it was fun to watch, though. That's for sure. And I tell you what, they say it all the time. You mentioned it last week, especially these mid-majors. If you have great guard play, man, great guard play Up is like the coach. Secret, secret ingredient to success. But my fear coming out of these types of situations, and this kind of ties back into what we talked about with NCAA realignment, part of me wonders if the Blue Bloods of the world, these Power Five, we'll call it Power Six in basketball because you got the Big East, if this kind of stuff happening regularly is going to maybe speed up their want to isolate themselves from everyone else because, you know, they they feel like you're having these mid-majors come in and take what's theirs, you know, take, take money out of the pot, keep them from winning national championships or competing for national championships. I mean, I don't know how to, I'm trying to think how to word it more eloquently but i could just i could see them essentially taking their ball and going home per se because they're they're tired of the the little guy on the block coming up and beating them every day and so they're like well enough of this peasants you go back to wherever we're going to go do our own thing i don't think that it is that crazy because what we're seeing now more often in the tournament is they're not just winning one game they're winning two games or sometimes even more and last year, St. Peter's was an aberration getting to the Elite Eight. And Princeton now is in the Sweet 16 as a 15 seed. And it's not that the committee is misranking these teams or poorly ranking these teams. I just feel as if they believe a lot more now. And Arizona comes in. It's really funny because I said, Arizona's a really good team. We make fun of the Pac-12. Boom, out. And it's <laughs> like, that. This the, remember, we had an episode once that we said, like, dreams come here to die. So if we ever That's talk true. about you, you yeah. are fucked, my man. But... FDU, you're right. They played with a tenacity. Now, I think the best part about their story is they weren't even really supposed to be there because they lost their conference title game to Merrimack, who I believe was making the transition to Division One, or there was some something that happened with their story, but they were able to go on a technicality. Everybody made fun of them. So what did they do? They blew out the team in their play-in game, and they beat the number one seed, Purdue, who is now, in my mind, a school that I will never trust again in my bracket. Frauds, frauds. Absolutely. I didn't have them going that far, but I just, it, it is kind of one of those things. But Princeton, I want to give you a little nugget. I know we do a stat of the week, but there's so many nuggets little to give out here. The Princeton men and women both won NCAA tournament games for the first time ever in the same tournament. I thought that was actually wow. really, really neat. I always love it. I don't know how you feel about that. I always love it when the men's and women's programs get to celebrate something simultaneously. I think one year the UConn women and the UConn men Men won a national championship. I like that because it feels like they can celebrate together. It's like the one time where it feels like they're kind of on the same team. So there's a lot of solidarity there. But Princeton, it was it was great. I don't know if you remember the Princeton teams from the 90s, but that backdoor cut offense, which is from like 1930s. And my wife was asking me why Princeton was able to beat them. And I said, well, Princeton's game is to slow the game down to an excruciating crawl so that you get less possessions. Good guard play helps that, by the way, because you want to keep the ball. You don't want to turn it over. And they want to get good high percentage shots at the end of the shot clock. It's how they have always done their offense. She's, and she said something. Is it like the triple option? And I'm like, you know, it kind of is because nobody else plays that way. And Princeton has never really been able to break through in the tournament. I loved this story. 
Yeah, I, I get it. When I was uh, when I was an offensive coordinator the last couple of years, we ran the wing T offense, which is from the freaking Stone Age, and it, we ran it for the same reason because a lot of times we were undersized and undermanned, and it was a way to control the ball, slow the game down, and basically three yards in a cloud of dust, um, and just. Hope you kept it close enough to have a shot at the end. But, uh, and then that's what they're doing. It was fun to see. And I think with uh, the men and women both winning, as wrong as it may be to say, I think it, the, them winning simultaneously does elevate the the spotlight on the women a little bit um, just because it, it's an added storyline that's going to get thrown in there when they're talking about the men and it's going to bring the women along, which is people say, well, they should stay on their own and they should, but you can't sit there and say that it's not going to raise the profile of it a little bit because it absolutely will, uh, which I think is awesome. And I tell you what, they're going to have a shot. You know, they're playing Creighton. Creighton's not, I mean, Creighton's a good team. They're not, you know, they, they're like a six seed, I think. Um, one thing fascinating about Creighton is, you know, on TikTok, I saw a bunch of those people putting like those weird matrixes together, like the teams that are in the top this in offense, top this in defense, top whatever. It's like there's only six teams that fit that category. And Creighton was one of them. And it's like the teams that always win the national championship are in those categories. So who knows? Maybe Creighton's onto something here. But I mean, but at this point, you throw the seeds out. I mean, you're, you're in the Sweet 16. You belong there. Uh, obviously, talent got you there. And let's see what happens. But what it told me over the weekend was that this is probably one of the most wide open fields that I've seen in quite a while. And I think with the departure of two number one seeds now, one of them being Kansas, who, by the way, for those of you paying attention on social media, both coach and I picked them to win. Yeah, so my bracket's screwed. <laughs> so we are terrible at this. Never listen to our advice, except for the pick of the week. But Never listen to our advice on any of this, but I think it just proves that nobody really knows anything. But Alabama surely looks good now, and they seem to have what could be a very good path heading towards, and they're definitely the most talented team probably that's left, but all these scrappy teams are in there. you got Miami, you've got Gonzaga, you've got San Diego State. So many of these teams are left, and for the first time in a while, I think I'm excited for the next round to see who gets to the Final Four because it genuinely feels like it could be anybody. No, and I love that stuff. I've told you before, I root for chaos, and I hope it happens. And I feel like last year at this point, we were in, the tournament was in a similar position. Like we, we had lost a couple of the, the higher seeds. You had St. Peter's. I think there might have been a couple others. And I remember having that feeling like, shoot, man, it's free-for-all. Anybody's game, and the Final Four panned out to be like four of the top teams you know whatever and i was like just kind of disappointed a little bit but uh no i hope it happens i i think it's it's good for the casual fan for sure i know that the kansas and duke fans of the world don't like it but i think it's great and it'll be interesting to see man because there's some really good matchups some really intriguing matchups i wouldn't want to play miami right now i mean i no. think they're going to be a problem for houston and the Michigan State and Kansas State matchup is going to be interesting, too. Yeah, there's a lot of schools like that. We're going to get into that in a second. But I just want to give a shout out to the state of New Jersey, because now two straight NCAA tournaments, they have had St. Peter's, they had Princeton, and then they had FDU, which, by the way, is our boy Cleve's alma mater. So congrats to Cleve. He got to celebrate something. I'm not sure he's ever been able to celebrate anything in college basketball quite like that. And I had to tell him that they were winning. <laughs> he wasn't even watching, huh? No. Man. I said, after you hanging tough, and he's like, yeah, he's like, oh, really? And then I'm like, they did it. And he's like, did what? And I'm like, number 16 seeds are now two and 150 all time against number one seeds. He did not know that. He's not a big college sports guy, in case you were gotcha. paying attention. But you talked about Michigan State. And as I'm watching this game, now our boy Shaka Smart, another team that we said was going to go far, <laughs> it's, they, they're gone. But 
known commodities in the NCAA tournament, we always make a big deal about teams like that. Michigan State, Tom Izzo, you never count them out because of the tournament, but there's all, you know, their success, but there's always so much turnover. But I do think that programs like that who have had coaches that have seen it all are more dangerous when you get to these games where they are the underdog because Tom Izzo has been in this situation before. Another fun nugget, he's now the winningest coach in NCAA tournament history when his team is the underdog, like the the worst seed in that matchup. And Shaka Smart, poor guy, is like one in eight in his last nine NCAA tournament games. The guy can't catch a break. And do you think that that matters, that when a team like Marquette, who is not traditionally known as a tournament mainstay, and then you got Tom Izzo, who's been there for 30 years, won national championships, and made Final Four runs with teams that had no business being there. Do you think that that stuff actually matters when it comes down to the play on the court? I don't know, man. It's tough, because I feel like experience matters. I feel like experience matters a lot, but the coach isn't able to go out there and physically play the game. Now, maybe as a player, if you're playing for Tom Izzo, you just have blind faith, and he has... you know, your full trust and you go out there and play hard because you feel like he's put you in the best position to win. But I can't say that Shaka Smart's guys don't feel the same way. I mean, she's coaching a lot of institute play tournament games too. I know it may not seem like it because he seems like still a fairly young guy, but the guys coached a lot of basketball and a lot of important basketball. So I, I think it's relevant. And I think that, but it, it might be overstated a little bit. Am I just like going with my heart here? Like when I see the Spartans on the sheet, I'm like, oh, I'm going with the Spartans because I know what they are. Like, it's just sort of like a gut feeling. And sports a lot of times is about that. I know that they've introduced analytics and numbers to so many sports and they definitely have changed how the games have been managed or coached. But from a fan perspective, sometimes you just get that eye test, the smell test, the gut, whatever you want to call it, whatever cliche you want to use for it. That's just how I felt as I'm watching this game. I'm thinking Michigan State is going to hold on to this because they're the more seasoned team, despite the fact that they might have all freshmen. Yeah, I mean, and that's another thing that comes with experience is you've you've been in almost every possible situation at that point in time, and you know how to win, and um, you know how to will your team to win in those tough moments, and and that only comes with experience. And like you're right though, there's just something about Sparty man when it comes to comes March, uh, especially as an underdog, as as we just found out uh, with your stat. But no, that's I wouldn't want to be Kansas State and I wouldn't want to be Houston this weekend. I can tell you that much. You know what I love about Michigan State is the fact that they're not like I don't see them as a blue blood, but they're that gritty team that's always there. Like you never want to see them on your path to the final four because, again, Tom Izzo, if there's some grit about that program and there are some programs that just sort of have that feel to them that you're like, they're not, they're going to be a tough out. It's like a pesky out. Remember David Eckstein, the former Cardinal guy would fell yeah. off like 17 pitches in a row. And you're like, God, I just can't get this guy out. That's kind of what Michigan State feels like in the tournament. Sure. And speaking of that grit, I remember like a story they did. And this might have been like 10 years ago um, at a practice where Izzo went and got some shoulder pads and helmets from the football program. And they were literally working on rebounding, wearing shoulder pads and helmets. I mean, he was just trying to preach and teach that the level of physicality that it takes to uh, to do that at a high level, you know, in the Big Ten, especially, and then on a national level, even. One of the things that also struck me this weekend was when they talk about the players. And I have to say that CBS does a really great job with the broadcast in general. I know that they had some missteps with the studio, but I'm talking about they have 
all these teams of announcers and almost all of them are actually pretty good. Like I didn't feel like they were lacking in that department. It was so many needs and games out there. I thought it was is interesting, but it seemed like every time they would highlight a player, they'd be like, oh, he transferred from here. Oh, this guy transferred from here. And there's all these transfer stories. And coaches like Tom Izzo are not a dime a dozen anymore because I think that the new rules or what they would consider a lack of rules have made it so that kids can pretty much leave anytime they want. And it's really difficult to get consistency within your program because of it. And that's kind of a deeper dive episode that we could do on it maybe next year. But I think that it has changed in a lot of ways because there really is no sense of loyalty. Because if you're not playing in your first year, well, I'm just out. And I'm not sure how I feel about that just yet. I like that the players are getting compensated, but I think there's a lot of unintended consequences to the way that it's sort of the Wild West right now. No, I think you're right. The portal is definitely changing the game, especially for mid-major programs, because you're basically rebuilding your roster every year because your best players are most likely getting offered by higher level programs. It actually happened to Bradley's best player today. Everybody thought he was going to leave to go pro in Europe. Um, If he did leave, he would leave to go pro in Europe. No, he entered a transfer portal. (laughs) <laughs> which was shocking, honestly. Uh, but you can't blame the guy. I'm sure there's a big bag of cash sitting somewhere at, at one of these Power 5 schools that he's going to go take. And I don't fault people for that. A lot of people, especially old school people, don't like that. But I'm not going to gonna throw shade at a guy that's going to do that. If, if I was 19, 20 years old and, and you told me you're going to give me 50, 75, 100 grand to go play basketball for you, like, peace out. I'm there, man, like, uh, in a heartbeat. And that's what's, uh, I think that's also helped a lot of mid-major programs too, though, because there are a lot of players that maybe fall down from power fives that just didn't get a chance in, in year one or whatever that land at a lower level that maybe help prop up a mid-major for a year or so, and then eventually they'll leave again and go elsewhere. But no, you're right. I think it's changing the game and it makes things really interesting. And like you said, the tournament, there, there were probably more former players from the Missouri Valley Conference playing in the NCAA tournament this weekend than uh, our current players in the Missouri Valley Conference, it felt like. I'm not saying that I noticed that, but I definitely noticed that every time they'd mention a school, I'm like, hey, I know that school. So one last thing on college basketball that I want to bring up is you talked about old and we talked about the Big East last week and the Big East has had two coaching changes at St. John's and Rick Pitino is now going to be the head coach there. I'm pretty sure that he's a vampire. He's going to live forever and everything. But talk about a guy who can do basically everything wrong with a program and still continue to ascend the coaching ranks at his age. And we just heard today that Ed Cooley, who is now the former coach of the Providence Friars, who is my hometown team, I went to high school five minutes from there, like a five minute walk. My high school was within shouting distance of PC, is now going to be the head coach at Georgetown after famed alum Patrick Ewing got fired after what is just an abysmal stint there. St. John's and Georgetown are really relics of the past, but I want to focus more on Georgetown because I think we could make fun of Rick Pitino all day. But is Georgetown even a job that is prestigious anymore? It doesn't even feel like a job that's relevant. Georgetown's relevancy is, gosh, at least 10 years ago now. Yeah, sadly, I think you might be right. And the fact that they didn't just have a bad year, but they got the piss beat out of them a lot. I mean, they did not play very many close games. And it's one thing if you're at least competing and just not winning games in a tough league, but that is not what happened there. It's sad that one of their prodigal sons, you know, Patrick Ewing, came back to basically put the nail in the coffin of what was once a proud program. I don't know if there is any resurrecting Georgetown. Maybe maybe the fact that they are in the Big East and that they do have their history to, to sort of, I guess, 
call back to, but it, they definitely have some work to do there. It's going to be an uphill climb. Yeah. And a school like Georgetown gets sort of left in the cold with all this realignment because they don't have a football program to lean on. Their basketball team has been crappy for the last 10 years. And it's sad because Georgetown used to be a mainstay in the tournament. But I will say this, though. I think that Purdue might very, very, very rapidly becoming the new Georgetown. Because remember, Georgetown used to lose to 13s and 14s all the time in the tournament. You could never trust them except that one time that they went to the Final Four. Okay, so college basketball is continuing. We will be watching the NCAA tournament next week. I'm not going to make any picks anymore because my picks are stinky. Nothing went well with my bracket. And guess what? I told nobody else about it because nobody cares about my bracket. For any of you listening out there, Nobody cares on social media about your bracket. It just kind of is the way that it is. Let's talk about Aaron Rodgers for a minute. So right after we recorded last week, Aaron Rodgers went on the Pat McAfee show and used these words. I intend to play for the New York Jets. Also in that interview, he said a lot of things. He took shots at Adam Schefter. He took shots at Diana Rossini, basically the Green Bay Packers, all the media. It was a very quintessential Aaron Rodgers press conference. And I just I can't fucking stand the guy anymore. I, I understand. I think that he he is hard to like, but I'll give the guy this. He don't give a fuck what anybody thinks. And that is a I envy that quality in people, people that have the ability, especially someone of his stature uh, that's out there that that's going to expose, uh, open himself up to be judged by millions of people. Uh, most people would be very uncomfortable in that situation, would not even people who are NFL stars or movie stars or music stars they they would not want to say things that would piss a bunch of people off that guy don't care he doesn't give a shit at all he doesn't care if i'm sure he doesn't care if you're a sponsor and you're going to pull your support or you know whatever you're doing ads for him or he's doing ads for you whatever i don't mind it man it, it's a little refreshing because it's different um is it abrasive absolutely does it make him appear to be a giant asshole yes but i kind of like it a little bit got to be honest but can't you like that though and like he's still lying like the some of the stuff that he said he talked about oh this didn't happen like he definitely maybe didn't give them a handwritten list of people that he wanted but he surely is telling the Jets that I need to have some of these guys here and what kills me about Aaron Rodgers is that he has been complaining for years that the Packers haven't been giving him any weapons and that I intend to play for the Jets with the same shitty weapons that I had and complained about in Green Bay and the reporters in the media are just doing their job now I do think it's funny that Adam Schefter shows the text message and confirms yeah I tried to get information from Aaron and he literally said, lose my number. So I do think that is funny. And at least as you pointed out, he doesn't care. And he was willing to say names. But at the end of the day, Aaron Rodgers is so about himself. He is so about people talking about him. And I know we're fueling that now by talking about him. It just, I I've, I've guess I've gotten to the end of my rope with this kind of shtick. And I just want him to either retire or just shut up and play at this point. Well, I believe he's even sort of alienated himself from his family, uh, I believe. I heard stories, you know, several years ago that he had kind of cut ties with most of his family for different reasons. And it seems like he kind of does that, though, with about anybody that gets into his life that, that he's fairly close with or that you would assume he'd be close with. Yeah, he he is. He's very he's very in Aaron Rodgers. And but you know what, though, I think that qualities that make up him as a person that, that you know, I don't know if you want to call it if he's, you want to say he has a chip on his shoulder. But that's also the same part of the same ingredients that go into making him a great competitor and a great quarterback. 
So now the New York Jets are hanging in the balance because they need to figure out this compensation. I'd like to think that they've already done that, but it's been almost a week now and we've had no movement on this. And I feel like the longer it goes on, the worse it is for the Jets because they have no options after this, like no options. Can you imagine if you're Alan Lazard right now, you've signed this contract with the Jets and Zach Wilson's throwing to you next year? Yeah, that would be terrible. And honestly, if if they play Zach Wilson, then Robert Sala should be fired. Uh, That guy should never take a snap in another NFL football game unless literally anyone else capable of playing the position has broken both of their legs. Oh, come on, man. You're really going to be that harsh on Zach Wilson? Yes, yes, I am. Come on. I'm a feeler. I've got feelings. I communicate. And you're like, never play again. Like, you're just, you're that, that, that's it? I, I he's going to be a cult, you know that. No, he's not. I hope not, man. If he if he is, that's the last that's that's the last move the Colts will make is with me um, as a fan. Uh, oh, I hope end. they heard that. If you're listening now at Indianapolis Colts on Twitter, write that down. You will not have the coach as a fan anymore, oh. and he will never watch the NFL again. He'll stick it to you. Yeah, I'll show them. Absolutely. Well, I think that it's fun to think about conspiracies now because the longer it goes on, you have to think, is there a little bit of reasonable doubt as to whether it would happen? So if you're the Jets, how long do you wait before you do something drastic? Like, oh, I don't know, offer Lamar Lamar Jackson a contract? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it sounds like they've got all their eggs in the Rogers basket. I haven't followed it super closely. Um, I don't know if they'll get to a point where they're tired of waiting for him or figuring it out. Um, it'll be interesting to see. And part of it's going to depend on what other suitors he thinks he has if things uh, if things do fall through with the Jets. I don't ugh, I don't know, man. I, I don't think again, I told you I'm not crazy. Lamar Jackson's great. I think if I'm if I'm in a win now mode and, and need to try to win a Super Bowl next year though, I'm taking Aaron Rodgers over Lamar Jackson. Well look, buddy, you're <laughs> Right now, your boy Colin Cowherd is saying that if the Jets don't get Aaron Rodgers, they should go after Mac Jones, which is just laugh out loud funny. Also, apparently the Patriots' private plane was in the vicinity of where Aaron Rodgers is right now. Can you imagine Bill Belichick swoops in and gets Aaron Rodgers, wins a Super Bowl, and the Jets are stuck with Zach Wilson, Mercedes Lewis, and Alan Lazard? Somebody better send a wellness check to Cleve's house if that happens, right? Oh, man. I just was like, this would be what would happen, right? Two savvy veterans, guys that people don't like because of their personalities, Bill Belichick and Aaron Rodgers, conspiring to screw over the New York Jets again. And this time he won't be sliding it through a a cocktail napkin like he did with I'm leaving as the head coach of the New York Jets. That would be the coup of all coups. But I just am fascinated by the situation because of how long it is taking. But the other part that fascinates me is Pat McAfee. You and I love Pat McAfee. I think I might always love Pat McAfee as long as he doesn't do something stupid, basically. But as a personality, I really don't see how you can get any better than Pat McAfee. And clearly he has a friendship with Aaron Rodgers and Aaron Rodgers did that man a solid. Over a million people watched on YouTube as Aaron Rodgers came on. That is incredible. Like, absolutely incredible. At one point, they had 500,000 people concurrently watching that show. Pat McAfee has built this empire that I'm jealous of. It's amazing to me, and it just has nowhere to go but up. No, it's tremendous. I love it. And one of my favorite parts about it is that he's basically brought all of his boys along for the ride. And, and that is absolutely, that's perfect. And and he really hasn't compromised who he is. And that's what's great about this podcasting space is you don't need anyone else really other than yourself to do this. 
which means you are beholden to no one other than yourself. You don't have you don't have to toe the company line for what some major media company or any of that stuff. And you know, Pat McAfee built himself up to a point where it was like you know he could write his own check and say, well, hey, uh, you know. I know I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I mean, I'm not, you know, he needs to be who exactly who he is on those shows. And I love the fact that this podcasting space allows people like him to do that. It's, it's fucking wonderful, man. It just blew my mind seeing the numbers and just seeing how successful he has been. And as a content creator in the sports space, it's hard not to want to emulate something like that because of how successful he has been and bringing your boys along. The thing is, is that his boys are also good at this. All of them have a talent for what they're doing because I think a lot of times in podcasting, and if you're listening to this, inside podcasting is probably not something that you are too keen on listening to. A lot of people assume that content creation is easy. You've got a microphone, you have opinions, you just give them, how hard could it be? It's very, very difficult. And it's difficult to do it and gain traction. Pat McAfee was a punter. It's not like he was a quarterback. He wasn't a household name when he played for the Colts, Super Bowl champion or not. He is a household name because of the hard work he has done and the genuine personality that he has shown in this creator space. And you're right, he has basically written his own check. He's at the point now where he's gonna have to start saying no to things because he's gonna be a dad and this conglomerate that he's making, this empire is just gonna get larger. He can't do everything. And I'm, I'm just so fascinated in here for the ride. And I would love it if Pat would give us a call and take us along for the ride. Yeah, come on, Pat, let's do it. I mean, it's not, I mean, he, yes, definitely. He's definitely, he was given the opportunity through, I think, the fact, one, he, you know, he was a unique personality as a punter. People at least knew who he was and found him to be entertaining. I think he did weekly spots here and there on Bob and Tom's uh, radio show, which also probably helped. And then at the point he retired and kind of broke off into his own thing, he did a little stand-up comedy. Uh, I mean, I think he had a little bit of, of a head start compared to the guys like you and me. But we just need to find somebody, you know, they don't, it doesn't even have to be the real Aaron Rodgers, just some guy named Aaron Rodgers or someone that looks like Aaron Rodgers could come on as an imposter. And then maybe we can end up on a shit list. I'll take the discount double check guy before I take anybody else. Rodgers, I got to get Rodgers. <laughs> yes. I will 100% take that guy. Okay. So last week we talked about baseball again and we tried to kind of stir the pot, maybe kick the hornet's nest of baseball diehards. We're not going to do that this time. We didn't get as much hate as we did last time. I got a little bit excited last week, overheated my camera. I want to stay in a Zen place this time and talk about something real. So right now, we're obviously in the throes of spring training and your mileage varies on whether you like spring training or not. I can't wait for opening day. It, it Until it's here, I'm not really into baseball. But every three years, I believe, the World Baseball Classic takes place. And some, one of our new subscribers, shout out to all of our new subscribers, by the way, on YouTube, commented on a question that I had about your favorite day in sports, and they mentioned the WBC. And the WBC was created because, I don't know if you remember this, but baseball was taken out of the Olympics at one point, and they were trying to basically create a World Cup for baseball, something to give it a more legitimate feel on an international level. And it has sustained, and it continues to grow. And I was watching it, and it's almost as if, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but it's like the most fun version of baseball because everything that we talk about wanting, high-scoring games, you know, speedy games, crowds that are into it, personalities, all of that is present at these games, and yet the American fan base doesn't seem to take it seriously, but when I watch, these international fans are just here for it. So I wanted to see how you felt about this as just an international tournament, first of all, and if you think that it's a good thing for baseball. 
So from just that, do I think it's a good thing as an international tournament? What's very weird about us as a country is we, as a as a whole, like to sort of pound our chest and, and patriotism, America, we're better than everybody else, especially when it comes to these world events. But we're really crappy fans, though, of these world events. I mean, yes, I think people get into the Olympics when they do happen. Uh, but look at the World Cup, for example. Like the World Cup does it better than any other world event out there, and it gets worldwide coverage. But even here in the States, I mean, yeah, there's people that tune in and watch, but it's still minuscule compared to what you're going to get in other areas of the world. So I, I don't know why that is. I, I think that it maybe it's just a... Maybe it's the fact that as Americans, we're kind of arrogant and just think that our professional leagues are, are better than what's happening worldwide or something. I don't know. I mean, that's a weird, it's a weird take, but no, stop it. Come on. I think these other countries, though, too, they just any opportunity they have to put themselves on display for the world, especially in a positive way, they get really excited about it. And especially if you're able to do it against a country like the United States, and that's going to bring even more attention and pride to the table. So I admire it, man. I love the fandom. I love people that get passionate about things. Um, it doesn't matter what it is, man. If I mean, as long as it's obviously something that's within the bounds of the law. I mean, if you're passionate about something, I'm here for it, man. I'm all about it. Tell me about it. Tell me why you're passionate about it. Tell me why I should check it out myself. Um, as far as the World Baseball Classic goes, is it good for baseball? I think it could be, but I don't think they embrace it the way they should. I mean, there's a lot of star players that don't play in it. I, I Obviously, the timing of it, I think, isn't great just because being right here with spring training and everything else. And what sucks, though, is it, it's almost the same thing as these all-star games and shit like that where people don't want to participate because they're afraid they're going to get hurt in what they consider to be a meaningless game, and it's going to cost them potentially millions of dollars. And that's what sucks is sports, major sports in our country are big business, and it really takes away from what could be in some of these national tournaments, per se, where in soccer, like, they value the World Cup. A U.S. soccer player, I'm sure, values the World Cup more than they do the MLS. But <laughs> everybody does. Yeah, but, I mean, I think that if you were to ask most, whether it's basketball, baseball, uh, a lot of these other sports, I mean, that don't have a uh, – or that have their own pro leagues here that are that are big time, that are world worldwide known leagues, I think that they'd value an NBA championship in some cases more than Olympic gold medal here and there. I mean, that's just my take on it. I wish it wasn't that way. I wish there was more more pride in it, but I do love seeing it, though, from some of the other countries, for sure. The thing about it, though, is when you look at the personalities on all these other teams, there is a lot of personality in baseball. And the American fan, because baseball takes takes place predominantly in this country, we, the American fans, kind of want to squash that. And we've talked about how the diehards want baseball to be this sort of prim and proper sport where you golf clap whenever something happens. And it has so much potential to be something more. Baseball is a unique sport. It's unlike anything else that is out there with all the different eccentricities within it. But all these all these personalities, the American fan wants it died down. No bat flipping because that's against the unwritten rules. No staring down a batter when you strike him out, stuff like that. And you see that stuff in the World Baseball Classic in the name of international competition and the players are loving it, eating it up. I have seen Mike Trout have more fun in these games in the World Baseball Classic than he's probably going to have through the 162-game slog that is going to be the Angels' no doubt failed season because they can't get their shit together. The Americans are fielding a legitimately great baseball team. Like, there is a lot of American-made talent in this tournament 
And we're missing out on all of it because we want to make baseball this sort of antiseptic thing. And I think the World Baseball Classic, I hope that it continues and grows. I mean, the amount of countries that are in it is vast. I mean, Israel has a team. Israel has a baseball team. And it's not a country that is associated with baseball. But baseball is truly an international game. And I think you're seeing that on display. I do agree, though, the timing. And Edwin Diaz, excuse me, Edwin Diaz, who is the closer for the New York Mets, injures himself celebrating with his teammates after a big win. And there's always going to be a debate about this. You can get injured at any time. He could have been injured in a spring training game and it wouldn't have mattered. But these professional teams have a lot of money riding on these guys. And how do you feel if you're a GM about one of your players playing in something like this when you know ultimately they may enjoy it, but from my business perspective, it's not a good thing? Oh, I think they hate it, man. No doubt. I mean, just their job is to put the talent on the field, right? Um, compete for championships. And if they're not doing that, they're not going to have their job for very long. So I imagine that they view it as if you're going to do something else and risking injury, like you're messing with my job at that point in time. I think that's how a lot of people think of things, unfortunately. I know that the NHL has not sent players to the Olympics, especially for the U.S. team, because of where it happens and how it happens and the timing of it. And they want to preserve their product and they're always going to run into it. I think that the long-standing nature of the World Cup has made it so that all these countries deeply care about it and they're going to put their professional careers on hold and these clubs I think are good with this because they know they're going to make a ton of money on the back end but for a baseball team Edwin Diaz plays for the Mets the Mets are in a large market they're probably going to make a lot of money just from ad revenue and TV revenue alone but imagine if the Marlins are sending Jazz Chisholm who's like their only marketable player and he gets hurt their only marketable player is now out for the season and they already were going to have a tough time selling tickets and now they have no attraction to sell tickets. And I think from a business perspective, you're probably very right about this. I mean, the Yankees don't allow any players to play. Aaron Judge is not on the U.S. team when he's probably one of the best U.S. hitters that we have. So it's I think it's only going to get worse now that we've seen injuries to these guys and especially a high prominent closer for the Mets who could have been a make or break year for them. They spent a lot of money trying to win a World Series. Steve Cohen can't be happy with this at all. No, you're right. I think it's going to get worse. And uh, that's unfortunate, though. Um, I, I mean, and maybe it'll get to it'll get like some of the other sports in the Olympics and things where they'll start playing college players and things like that. But I mean, then you're still going to run into the whole deal of, well, do I risk getting injured and risk a pro career and everything else? It's sad, but I think it's just it's just what it's become, you know, being big business and a lot of money being involved. I can't say I blame them for viewing it the way that they do. Um, and it's in their own personal best interest in most cases, but I, I do as a, as a fan, I wish it weren't that way. Yeah, and I might actually have to add World Baseball Classic to my sports bucket list. It looks like a lot of fun. And I'm not even talking about seeing the U.S. team, but man, like Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, that was outstanding. The crowd was all over it. Or any of those Asian teams like Jap in Japan, man, those fans are amazing. Japanese yes. baseball is so amazing. And yet we want to make it boring and prim and proper here. I don't understand it. Baseball fans, I love baseball. I want it to continue to be a part of America's pastime and America's fabric. You're making it hard, man. Let them play. Let them be who they are. That's all that I am asking. And you know what? On that note, it's time for OTW.
Every week, OTW of the week, where we like to have a little bit of fun with a little bit of a personal touch, we always start with Iceman Stat of the Week. So, Coach, you are familiar with the San Diego State Aztec basketball team, are you not? Indeed I am, sir. And they defeated one of your teams this past week, which we will get to in your pick of the week. But the San Diego State Aztecs are now in the Sweet 16. And I was doing a little bit of research listening to the Dan Lebitard show today. And Mike Schur, who is a writer for TV and movies, was on there. And he does a stat of the day every single day. And did you know the all-time assist leader for San Diego State basketball is none other than Major League Baseball Hall of Famer Tony Gwynn? Wow. You know, it's funny. When you started going down that road, I'm like, Tony Gwynn. I bet it's Tony Gwynn. That's awesome, man. I love Tony Gwynn stats because Tony Gwynn stats are so unlike any other stat in baseball. When you look at his strikeout numbers and things like that, I think in 19 seasons straight, he struck out less times than the Yankees struck out last year or something like that. It's something crazy. And I think I sent you that and you said the game has changed. And I said, I think these stats highlight how much the game has changed. Sure. But you can add basketball star to his resume. It just it, it tickles me so much because San Diego State, obviously, they haven't had a lot of high prominent players. The other player that I think of is Marshall Falk. I didn't know that Kawhi Leonard also played for San Diego State, so there's that. So Tony Gwynn, all-time assist leader for your San Diego State Aztecs. I just thought it was fun. It is fun, man. That's super fascinating. Um, and it's cool to hear about like those dual-sport guys. You don't see that very often anymore. Ah, yes, it is that time for Coach's Pick of the Week. Last week, you made NCAA tournament picks. You were undefeated, 1-0, and and you got a little bit ballsy last week. You made two picks last week because I think you were feeling it just a little bit, a little bit early in the season to be that cocky, but it's okay because that's what we want from the coach. We want that moxie, that grit. And so you picked Furman over Virginia, which was probably the best game of the weekend. And you picked the poor College of Charleston over the aforementioned San Diego State Aztecs. Now you finish splitting one and one. That leaves you at two and one on the season. You have a winning record again. You didn't have a winning record at all the last time we did this throughout the entirety of that picking process. So now, Coach, please bless us with your next picketh of the week. Hear ye, hear ye, peasants, old degenerate baseball fans and gamblers alike. We're going to get back on the winning trail this week, and we're going to visit a team we talked about earlier, and we're going to take them to be victorious as underdogs, as they've done so many times in the past. That's right. The Michigan State Spartans over the Kansas State Wildcats this weekend in Sweet 16 action to move on to the Elite Eight. Book it. Tom Izzo and Sparty over the Kansas State Wildcats from not Manhattan, New York, but Manhattan, Kansas. So let it be written, Coach. So let it be done. All right, everybody, we have reached the end of the episode, a packed episode with March Madness talk and a little bit of baseball talk. We kind of sprinkle a lot of things in there to keep everybody on their toes and interested. And I'm glad I didn't get nearly as heated. I had a little bit of a blood pressure problem last week. I'm feeling a lot more calm, my man. But as we get out of this episode, do you have anything that you would like to impart to the members of Ice Time Nation? I think we were a little more docile this week. You're right. A little more laid back and reserved, uh, but there's nothing wrong with that. I like the way that we jumped around to several different areas of the sporting world, which is fun and talked about it in our own special way. Um, and the best part is we get more of it this weekend uh, with 
uh, Sweet 16 and Elite Eight action. And when we come to you next week, we will have a final four to discuss. And we will be just knocking on the door of things like the Masters that is right around the corner. So looking forward to maybe adding a little golf talk to the conversation as we move along. 100%. I love me some golf, especially the majors. But I was watching a little Valspar Open this past weekend and watching Jordan Spieth choke his way to a third place finish once again. I'm not necessarily hating on Jordan Spieth. It's just what happened in the match. But I I do love watching golf. I know a lot of people think that golf is boring, but I love watching it because it's amazing to see people do something that I could never be that good at and just be so consistently consistent all the time. It's amazing. It's why Tiger Woods run at the top there was one of the most unprecedented things I've ever seen. Yeah, I don't know if we'll ever see anything like that again, just because I think there's too much talent. I think that technology has advanced so much in the game of golf. It's really leveled the playing field. Uh, I've heard this chatter about them trying to mess with the ball and stuff like that, which is stupid, I think. But no, man, it, it's fun to watch, especially if you've played golf. If you, you if you think golf's boring and you've never played golf, go play one time and you will never think golf is boring again. Like you will instantly appreciate what those guys are able to do. And just like you said, with the consistency and accuracy that they're able to do it over and over again. And then once in a while, you'll see one of them duff one and you'll be like, see, it even happens to them. Oh, it's amazing. When they hit a shot that's bad, they're just as bad as our shots. And you think to yourself, how is it that they can be so consistent? But that's how precise that game is. The mechanics of your swing, everything about it, it has to be impeccable every single time. And some of these guys, like I saw a guy this past weekend, his ball was right up against the tree root. Literally the worst lie that you could have. He does a left-handed shot and hits the ball back into the fairway to be able to at least have a chance to save par. And I'm like, I could not do that. No random golfer could do that that I know. Yeah, see, that's when the coach gets the old foot wedge out and uh, punches that puppy back out <laughs> into the fairway. Oh, hey, I found it, everybody. It just happened to be rolling out here. I'm not sure what happened. A little gust came through here. I have to tell you, I have stopped playing golf only because I have been known to throw a club or two every now and again. I don't like to be bad at anything because I believe that I can be good at anything. Golf is the one thing in my life that I have found out that I can never be good at, no matter how much money I pour into it, how much time I put into it. I'm just a shitty golfer. <laughs> you know what, though? Most of us are, uh, and that's what makes what those guys do every weekend so impressive. However, one of these days when we have the Iceman and Coach open for charity, I will pull out the sticks. Coach and I will be in our golf carts making the rounds, doing a little glad handing. But until then... Oh, man, what a great week this was. I just had a really fun time. But I want to remind everybody a couple of things before we get you out of here. Please support the Pup Time Podcast wherever you find your podcast. They are all over the place. They do a lot of fun stuff. So check them out. They deserve your support. If you are watching on YouTube, do not forget to hit that like and subscribe button. Do not forget to visit the Matty Ice Media Network website, mattyicemedia.com, to find all the other podcasts that we have as a part of this network, such as Political Football and Fire Footwear. If you are listening on Apple and Spotify, do us a favor, hit that follow button, give us a few stars, ratings, even if it's to tell us that we suck, it's better than nothing. Coach, it was a lot of fun this week. I had a great, great time. Oh, and by the way, do not forget to call our number 703-718-6314. Also, if you want to tell us how full of shit and crappy we are, please do so. We would love to hear it. The hate flowing through you into this week. Coach, it was a great time, as always. I hope this finds everybody safe, happy, healthy. And this is Iceman and Coach.
The opinions and viewpoints expressed on the Iceman and Coach Sports Show are those of Matt Freights, Brad Powell, and their guests, and not necessarily those of the Matty Ice Media Network. The Iceman and Coach Sports Show is exclusively owned by Matt Freights and Brad Powell and is brought to you by the Matty Ice Media Network.